if you want to make money as a uh, as a freelancer uh, uh, or an agency, you need to develop authority. Authority is what attracts a client. Expertise is what keeps them. Hey, what's up, you guys? My name is Michael Kraszowski, and welcome to episode 63 of That Remote Life podcast, where we hear from location-independent entrepreneurs and professionals so you can learn to quit the cubicle and live life on your terms. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by Tim Conley, the founder of Conley Strategic and Rise XL Agency Accelerator. I first heard about Tim from the Tropical MBA podcast, and then I started consuming his content on YouTube and his many podcast appearances over the years. And what really caught my attention about Tim is how many people that I have a lot of respect for and view as authorities in their fields point to Tim as a mentor or trusted advisor. And so I wanted to go to the source and learn from Tim. And during this interview, we really dove in deep on how Tim got started in entrepreneurship over 20 years ago, why he became inspired to transition his business to being location independent, how to scale your freelance business to an agency the right way, and how to leapfrog to an authority in order to attract the creme de la creme of clients. This was an awesome episode, but before we dive into the interview, I do want to share a new review we received from Joe on Apple Podcasts, who says, incredibly valuable content, five stars. This podcast is always relevant. Great topics, guests, and information that can immediately be implemented into your routine as a location independent. Miko's interview style is very authentic, which always takes the conversation to the next level. Whether you're just starting or five years into the journey like me, this is such a valuable source of information to improve the quality of your business and life. I gotta say, thank you so much for the review, Joe. I'm very happy to hear that you are finding value, even as someone who's been around for a while. And if you're listening and enjoying this podcast as well, consider leaving an honest review wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. It's one of the best ways to support this podcast. Also, uh, I promise this is the last thing, but if you are enjoying this podcast and you want to contribute, you want to join the conversation that we're having, head over to Facebook and search for That Remote Life Guild to meet more people just like you who are interested in online business and the digital nomad lifestyle. As always, you can find the full show notes and all the resources we mentioned during this interview over at thatremotelife.com forward slash episode 63. That's episode all spelled out, followed by the number 63. All right, you guys, without further ado, let's jump into this awesome conversation with Tim Conley. All right. Well, Tim, welcome to the show, man. Thank you uh, so much for taking the time to be here. Thanks for having me on, Medco. So first of all, we met in the DC, which is the Dynamite Circle, um, which is run through the guys from the Tropical MBA, which is a great podcast. If no one's um, you know ever heard of it, go check it out. Great podcast. But w- one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on is it seems like a lot of the people that I regard as either like mentors, you know, like people who I look up to whose businesses I'm like, wow, they've done really great things. I really like the things they have to say. They 
look at you that way. Like there's multiple people <laughs> who I've who I've looked up to who will then point to you as like their like you know like digital mentor or so. Awesome. And that's awesome. That's really cool to like see to kind of like go directly to the source in some way. So how did you get involved with kind of this online business world in the first place? Let's start there. Uh we have to go back to like 1988. Nice. Yeah, I had a Commodore 64, Uh, a friend had a modem, and uh, and we scraped together some uh, dollars to be able to pay for long-distance fees to be able to dial into, I think it was CompuServe was the first one, And, and then that was my first introduction to the internet. Wow, and so was it immediately like you... You, you know, you heard the the dial up, and you were like, "Money, like business," or was it first for fun? Absolutely not. And you know, I was a kid uh, way back then. Uh, you know, I was a teenager, and I uh, taught myself like how to code in basic. I could like make a little man run across the screen, kind of thing. That's pretty much all I could do. Uh, but the internet was not graphical, and so it didn't captivate me. Uh, you know, it wasn't even called the internet back then. Uh, it, it, uh, so there's like bulletin boards and stuff like that. And I, I'm a visual person sitting down and seeing words on a screen. Not cool. Just like I didn't care that the person was in Japan. I like I, like the novelty of uh, communicating with somebody around the world wore off so fast with me. So so I just played around with it. I still kind of fascinated by technology, but just kind of played around with it. Then uh, many years later, I'm in college, and uh, and all of a sudden we've got Netscape. Actually, yeah, it was Mosaic, but then you know Netscape came along. 1995, Netscape went public, and and that was really I, I'd been already been teaching myself how to make web pages, coding web pages, and then all of a sudden it was like graphical. And I was like, this is it. Like, th- there, there's my future. My future is there. And, uh, and I ended up dropping out of architecture school. Uh, I was almost done. I think I had like a semester left, semester and a half left of architecture school. And I dropped out to pursue the whole uh, internet dream. And mm-hmm. yeah, yeah so, so, so that got me, like that, that was the whole... Uh, you know, skipped a whole bunch of nerd stuff, but there was, there was a lot that went that way. Then I went off and started building a business and I got really interested in back then they were called ultra portable computers and, you know, before netbooks and, and all the, uh, and that whole rage of making computers smaller, I was trying to figure out how could I travel the world, which I love doing and still run a business. And what year is this? Oh, going back to uh, 2002. Yeah, about 2002. I was really getting into how do I do that? Like how how do I use the least amount of technology? Because way back then you would have to actually carry a portable printer, a portable scanner. You couldn't get a portable printer and a portable scanner in one device. Now you can just take a picture. It's like you can just take a picture (laughs) of the document and send it. Like you don't need paper. 
But back then you needed to carry stuff like that. Your laptop was this gigantic machine and weighed and weighed like 11 pounds. And it, it was just, it was insane. So I kept trying to figure out like, how can I run a company smaller with smaller and smaller devices and eventually get down to a single device? I'm still not single device yet. Uh, the technology's not really there. Uh, maybe an iPad Pro, right? A Surface Pro could be the one piece of tech that you carry around with you all over the world and run and completely run a company. So I've been fascinated by that. And I'd been working on it, blogging about it in 2005 and, and blogging on how to run a company uh, even a local company that was uh, in a single geographic region. I had a swimming pool company and be, and still being able to run around the world and run that company. And then 2007 came along and this book hit the market called the four hour work week. And I was like, that's what I've been doing. Like, that's the thing. And that book, what, what that allowed me to do was like, find my tribe. Mm. So first of all, right off the bat, it's almost kind of creepy how similar our journeys are because just like you, I dropped out of college in the pursuit of like the online business dream. And I also worked for a swimming pool company. So that's a bit, that's a bit weird right there. But what made you in the first place want to run a company and travel? A lot of people have the desire to be businessmen, quote unquote. Uh, yeah. and run a company. But what made you want to do that and travel? Because like you said, a lot of people now have that as an idea because it's been around for a little bit. That concept has been introduced. But back then there was no, you know, for our work week yet. So right. what made you want to do that in the first place? Okay. Uh, one, all I want to do is travel the world. So since I wasn't uh, a trust fund kid, I wasn't independently wealthy. <laughs> I was going to have to do something, right, to be able to fund running around and seeing the amazing places in the world. So I looked at jobs. And, you know, strangely enough, back in the uh, early 2000s, there's, and even in the 90s, well, throughout the entire 90s, there weren't very many jobs that said, hey, you can work from anywhere. Just log into the internet and travel the world and do as you please, <laughs> right? They, they didn't. Right, right. They, they didn't exist. And and in my travels, I ran into people who loved uh, traveling and built businesses that allowed them to do it. And that's when I was like, you know, I have this entrepreneurial itch, and like I've been trying some entrepreneurial stuff. Uh, what if I actually put the two together, like these people that I've met? Like, what if I could find a business and and travel, make them compatible? Like, is that a, is that possible? Right, and that's what set me on the journey. It was like, how do I take the two concepts and put them together? Had there been an amazing job that said, "Hey, travel whenever you want to, log in and do your thing," way back then? I probably would still have a job. This is a question that I've, that I've had with several friends of mine. Um, and we've discussed it here on the podcast before. So I'm curious to hear your opinion. Do you feel like there's a benefit to your business or to you as an entrepreneur from traveling? Like, is there something that traveling and doing it a lot actually 
benefits to your business? Probably just creativity. Because uh, one, mm. one of the things that, that I find when traveling is you get locked into your ways. Uh, there, there's that saying of like a fish doesn't know it's in water. It, it's like mm. it's, you're in your environment, you're in your culture, and your culture does things a certain way. It's just how it's just what we do. We just do it this way. And you don't question it. You don't think about it. You can't question it or think about it because it's water. You're you're just swimming in it. And then when you leave, you're like, oh, you mean I don't have to do it this way? Because this whole this whole country is crazy because they do this thing this whole other way. And that doesn't make any sense to me at all. Right. Mm -hmm. And that lets you see new things, new possibilities. But if you travel too much and you try to run a business, your business is going to suffer because there's a trade off. There's a trade between time, income and mobility. You cannot have all three in equilibrium at the same time. You're either taking time to travel, uh, taking time away from the business to do some other things, which can lower potentially lower your income. Uh, or other times you have to trade uh, time and mobility to gain more income so that you can then reinvest it into being able to run around the world. I, I, we have these, these uh, macro freedoms that we have to like try to balance and they're, they are a moving target. Because I think that's a really interesting concept that you said the time, income, and mobility. If somebody's just getting started, which one of those do you think they should initially invest in? Like to build up to then give them the best chance of achieving the other two? Sadly, income, right? Mm -hmm. I feel like I don't, I, I don't want it to be true, uh, but we, it has to be true. Like if you don't have money, you can't do squat. Uh, yeah. that's, that's the world we live in. Uh, you don't have to have a lot of money. But you do need to have some income that you can trade for time. You need to have some income so that you can trade it for mobility. What I focused on was how do I develop income that contributes to me getting time and mobility at, at the same time? Mm -hmm. You know, uh, looking for the ideal, like all three in equilibrium. It, it, it's not possible because you make those trades, but if you set up your income so that, and, and here's my nerd talk, uh, is it's non-geographically derived. Like mm -hmm. you don't have- Location to, independent. Exactly. You don't have to be in a specific place to make money. Most jobs require you to sit at a desk to make money. Uh, most businesses are entrepreneurs don't have to do this, but they do it anyways because of culture. Uh, they set it up so that they have to be in a spot to be able to earn income. So I had a swimming pool company and it was location dependent, right? All of the customers were in a single area. So there's. And were you building pools or what were you doing? Uh, in the company? So swimming pool service, uh, repair and remodeling. I did not get into building new ones because that was a crazy mess and did not want to touch it. So uh, I stayed away from that, but remodels and, and all that, because 
it's so much easier to find a customer who already has a thing than it is to find a customer who wants a thing and you don't know they want it. So you have this pool company. Yep. Because most people are like, oh, he's got a pool company. He, he's stuck. You, you need to sell it or something like that. So how did you go about then taking your ownership of this pool company and moving in a location independent direction? Uh, quality assurance. That, that was the one thing because a swimming pool company, all the people who work on a pool are out in the field by themselves. So you could try to go run around with all of them and try to make sure they're working all the time. You could, I don't know, maybe today put a GPS tracker and fly drones over them and, uh, and have them uh, monitored at all times. But you develop a trust system systems for the people doing the work, but then a quality assurance system. Without the quality assurance system, there's no way to make sure that you're doing the job right and scaling. And that doesn't even include you being able to leave. We're, we're just talking about being able to uh, make sure the job's done well. But the funny thing is, is if you got a solid quality assurance system in place, you don't have to be there. Can you go in a little bit deeper on what you mean by a quality assurance system? Like, can you describe kind of like what you put in place? Okay, so uh, one service was a, a weekly cleaning of swimming pools. So they go in, clean the pool, also look at the equipment, make sure the equipment's running properly, stuff like that. Make sure everything's working and the pool's clean and healthy and all that stuff. Well, that happens once a week, every week. And eh, no one's watching them. So are they going to do a good job or not? And that problem has to be solved through some form of uh, checking on them. Right? So, so we had some uh, structure to verify that they were actually there. Uh, and, and this was kind of old school. This was before a lot of the software that was available. And GPS was just making its way into that industry. But where we had a tag where the, the person who came in and did the work left a tag for the homeowner. Then every so often, a manager would come in behind and verify that they actually did the work. The pool was clean. The like Every little piece that they said that they did on the tag had actually been done. And no one knew when their QA person was going to follow them. So they would get a warning. If it didn't happen properly, they'd get a warning. And then they'd know, oh, they really are doing quality assurance. They really are following me around. And I don't know that, like, I don't know that they're there, right? And, and checking on their work. So then they would just do the work. And then we had, uh, to well, then who watches the watchers, right? That goes to the next thing. So then you build a team at the management level so that the managers are cooperating. I don't actually like it, like that they're watching each other. All the managers would each help each other do their job properly. And then that frees up time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's interesting because... Even though you were working with a pool company, I think everybody here who has a remote team or is part of a remote team can kind of understand the struggle that you're going through, right? Because if you're in a cubicle environment, we're on an office together, there is this feeling of like, 
people can kind of see if you're doing work or not. Yeah. Um, and in a remote setting, there isn't that. So how do you establish a quality assurance uh, system within, you know, your pool or in now remote setting uh, to kind of like, you know, keep track of that. So that's really interesting that you kind of started that. And I'm sure that that now translates into everything that you do now, right? Because you already have experience with that. Right. At what point did you feel like, okay, I'm doing this, you know, uh, I've, you know, now everything's running smoothly. I'm able to operate this company remotely and I can kind of like hit the road. Did that ever happen with that company or did you have to pivot into something else to actually achieve that? Okay. So yes and no. Uh, yes, I was able to take off, but no, but I did not get the company big enough, uh, to fully release me from any duties. I, it needed to grow bigger, but I wasn't happy with it. I didn't really like, I didn't really enjoy it. I, it wasn't something that I wanted to get up in the morning and think about. And I was waking up every morning and thinking about it. And if I was traveling, I always had to know that something could happen and I'd have to hop on a plane and fly home because ultimately the buck stopped with me and and even though I had a lot of stuff in place that could handle most disasters related to business, um, it's still, I, I still worried. And it, a vacation is not much of a vacation if you're worrying. Because what we're talking about here is, it sounds like, you know, 10 or plus years ago. Um, how did you then, because now, you know, you, you help a lot of agencies um, and a lot of online businesses with coaching and training. Kind of, uh, I'm sure that's a long journey, but in a, you know, how did you kind of transition from what you were doing then to what you're doing now? Well, I didn't actually transition because uh, I was, I still had an agency. I was actually running two companies. So that was also part of the problem, right? I was, I was uh, burning the candle at both ends, as they say, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I, I was doing a lot. And the agency, I had made it remote. Uh, as soon as I moved from Portland, Oregon, down to Phoenix, Arizona, uh, making that transition, I just cut the cord with all my clients. With all of your pool clients? No, no, no. Uh, the pool clients, uh, that, that business was built in, in Phoenix. Uh, I was in uh, Oregon. Do, I had an agency. And I left Oregon and came to, uh, came to Arizona and... And all those clients that I had back in Oregon, well, there's no more face-to-face -face meetings. Mm, okay, I see. We're, we're doing Skype. That's it. That's the only time you're getting a meeting. If you want me on, if you want me there for something, you're gonna have to pay for my travel, and you're gonna pay for all that. And they, they were like, "Oh, I guess we don't need to have you here physically because we can do a video call." And that's what we mm -hmm. did. And that was in 2004. And and so I broke the cord on that one. And then I built a company that needed to have systems built so that I could actually cut the cord for that one. And what were you doing in that agency? Like what kind of work were you doing? I was doing marketing. I, I would actually build advertising campaigns for companies. And, and during that era, I was learning about operations because I was doing marketing for people. And then they would sabotage the marketing and then blame me for the failure of the marketing. And I, and I hate that. I hated it. Hated being blamed for something that happened on the client side. So 
uh, you don't make much money in services if you blame your customer. So, so I couldn't blame them. Couldn't say, Hey, it's your fault and still, and still give me money. Right. <laughs> those, those two things don't work. Right. So I had to find a solution. So back then I was learning about operations because what was happening was I would drive customers. I drive prospects to the business because that's all businesses ever want. I want more customers. I want more customers. Most of them couldn't handle more customers. And, and so we, uh, how do we solve that problem? And then that developed into a consulting service that I also did, uh, operations consulting. And so that I could make sure that their business would be able to function properly so that I could actually do marketing for them. That's really interesting because I operations is kind of what I do on a day-to-day basis for an agency. Uh, so that's kind of like my day job that pays for this podcast and everything else. So if you had a tip for anybody in terms of operations, like two or three things that are like essentials for operations for agencies or like a freelancing business, do you know what those would be? Like kind of like top three most important things to know in terms of operations or to put well, in place? Well, let's just go with one. Like the one thing that I, that I always do is where does this break? Right? Just ask that mm. question. If you just ask people, where does it break? Most of most businesses can't tell you even where their business works, let alone where it breaks when certain things go wrong. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. It shouldn't be like that. People should know exactly how their business works. So if they can't describe how the system works, then the first place to do is to describe the system. So you start, well, how do how do we get customers? Well, it starts off here. Well, then what happens when we get them? What what parts of the systems exist there? Okay, now that we have them, what do we do for them? How does that work? And then after they're done, what happens then? Right? So the before, during, and after. What what happens? And describe it. Once I did it with my clients and we put it out on paper. And we started on one wall, thought we'd just like take up like four or five feet on one wall. And we wrapped all the way around the entire conference room, mapping how all the different steps from one thing to the next to map out their entire business, how it worked. And then we could look at it and say, oh, where does it break? Where does it, where does this business break? And that was easy, like it's like and it just stands out when you start asking that question. And then it's like, oh no, this thing's fine. This part of the system's fine. I'm like, okay, great. Now, what happens if we 10x your customers? What breaks? Because something's going to break. Because mm-hmm. a business, this business doesn't have 10x those customers. It has x customers. And, and so what happens if you were to 10 X at what would break? And usually on the marketing side, it's like right up front. We can't even accept that many customers. Sure. We'd love to have them, but all of our product takes six weeks to get from China and we only have enough product for one and a half X. 
So we'd have a lot of unhappy customers. So that's where it breaks, right? Like the, just mm-hmm. simply going through each little step of the whole business, not just the part that you're in charge of, but the whole business. And you'll, you'll discover what breaks if you're actually successful. A lot of people who are listening are freelancers who may be trying to scale up. They want to build up their business. So it's not just reliant on them, right? They want to get some of that time freedom that we talked about. You know, they want to get, you know, they've, they've built up a little bit of income. They've built up some mobility. Now they want to win back that time and build an agency through it. So for those people who are looking to scale up, uh, they're freelancing to more of an agency. What would be some of uh, your tips for them? Okay. Number one, start small. Don't go full service. Uh, for some reason, people have it locked in their head. Agency equals full service. Don't do that. Whatever you're good at as a freelancer, do more of it. I, I, it, I know that sounds like that's stupid simple, but for some reason, people don't do that. They, they start adding services that they're not good at, that they don't truly understand. And they start adding more and more and they add this complexity and then don't make any more money. Matter of fact, They'll make less money. The, they may have bigger revenue, but they'll personally take home less money and they'll be stressed like nobody's business. So the, And then the second thing is, do not listen to anyone who tells you to hire a VA to, uh, to solve your problems so that you can move into the agency space. Uh, I, I hear this advice all the time. Uh, you know, hire out, replace all the $10 an hour work that you do with, uh, with somebody so that you can work on the $100 an hour stuff. My advice is that $10 an hour stuff, the reason it's $10 an hour is it has zero impact on your business. It does not grow your business. The $100 an hour stuff grows your business. So go hire somebody who can do $100 an hour work. Mm. That way you can focus on going out and getting clients that'll pay you $300 an hour or $1,000 an hour while you hire somebody doing $100 an hour work. So what it sounds like almost is what you're saying is like double down on what's working because I, I totally understand the first point that you made there is I feel like a lot of people, for example, they might have an agency where they do or they're, they themselves are doing like web development, for example, and they decide they want to go into mm-hmm. the agency model. And instead of bringing on people to help them do the web development, they might bring on somebody to do Google ads or something like that, right? right. Uh, instead of doubling yep. down. And essentially what you're saying with the second point is hire somebody to do the work that you're being paid for, not the yes. helping work, not the assistance work. All, all the admin work, all the stuff that's behind the scenes that you don't like doing and all that stuff, they don't move the needle. And if you're trying to transition from just being yourself, then you have to move the needle significantly or you will be stressed or you will have all this work and anxiety. I know I've been there and loads of my clients have too. So you need to do something that has impact in your business, that brings in significant money. Uh, taking all the little things you don't like doing, just that, that, I, that concept is, is so flawed because it says you are then going to work harder on the $100 an hour stuff. Mm. And what I'm saying is the best way to have an impact 
is to hire $100 an hour people. And, and you don't have to hire them for 40 hours. You just on the project, the piece that you need done, hire those people. They're easier to manage. $100 an hour uh, person is easier to manage typically than a $10 an hour person. Yeah, because they have more experience. They've been through it. You can usually kind of like not have to watch them as closely, you know, going back to the quality assurance. That's yep. almost built into it, right? That's what you're saying? Right. Right. Yes. So because they're a professional, like this is this is what they do. I'm really good at this thing. And the $10 an hour person's like, I just need to pay some bills. Right. Right. And, and I can go get a $10 an hour job anywhere. Mm-hmm. Or $15 an hour, any lower like dollar figure, like you can find those jobs anywhere. Like I don't have to go through the stress of your agency. I could just go work at a restaurant and make the same money. So I'm not going to do that. Right. The, uh, and it has, so it has no impact. If you focus on the money generating activities in your business and just suck it up for a while on your own on all those little admin things like, Oh, just set aside 10 hours a week and get those admin things done. Get it out of the way. I know it sucks. I know you don't like doing it, but go focus on that money, make a chunk of money. And then it's like, Oh, now I can easily hire someone to take over all the, all the admin work. Mm -hmm. And I don't have to do that stuff anymore because now I have this machine that produces far more money than just my own personal labor. Yeah. Almost going back full circle. Like we talked about, about that trifecta, right? Of time, mobility, and money. Mm -hmm. And you said the very first thing they need to figure out is money. It's almost going for a circle to that where it's like, Hey, focus on the money, focus on the money generating stuff and nail that down because then that can solve the rest of your stuff. Right. So it's, it can buy mobility mm -hmm. and it can buy time. Speaking of, this is something that I've been kind of thinking about recently. I listened to a very interesting interview with Seth Godin, who I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with. And yep. One of the questions that I've been asking myself and, and pondering over the last two weeks since I listened to, to this conversation with Seth Godin is, do you think that freelancers need to scale up? Can they stay just freelancers? Because I feel like the, the term freelancer and somebody identifying themselves as a freelancer, it's almost kind of like looked down upon and like it's not necessarily something that's um, connected with significant financial gains. So what are your opinions on that? Like, can somebody just remain a freelancer yet still, you know, bring in like a good amount of money? Okay. Uh, we got to have some definitions, mm -hmm. right? What do we mean by scale? What do we mean by good amount of money? Sure. Um, if we're talking $50 million as a good amount of money, Absolutely right, not. Right. You cannot be a $50 million a year freelancer. Mm -hmm. um, maybe if you're Michael Jordan, I don't know, LeBron James, maybe, right? Uh, but uh, if you're a web designer, no, no, you, you wouldn't even be able to complete a million dollar website for a company mm -hmm. by yourself. Just not going to happen. So, uh, if we're if we're talking about we want to scale so that we can work on really big projects, stuff that's like just intellectually engaging, you know, really dives into our creativity and and be able to work on things that are like, I built that. I built that for Nike. How awesome is that? Well, you're not doing that as a freelancer. Mm. 
Not, not even possible. Uh, if, uh, so you have to scale to be able to do that kind of work. You're just not going to be able to do it. Uh, you know, scientists, uh, you can be a you know stay-at-home scientist, but if you, uh, but if the work that you really want to do requires uh, a hundred million dollar lab, you're not going to do it at your you know in your home laboratory. It's just not possible, right? So it, you got to determine what do I actually mean by scale? Because scale should not be numbers of employees. That should never, never fall under the definition of number of, uh, you know, of scale, right? Uh, and money, revenue is not necessarily the best scale. Uh, if, if you're looking for $500,000 in personal income, you don't need to scale, you know, quote unquote scale. You don't need to add people. You don't need to add services. You just need to find a handful of the right clients that see you as the expert to solve their problem. And you can earn half a million dollars. And if you think half a million is good money, there you go. You've, you've scaled. Yeah. It's almost like you're saying is like, it depends on your objective, right? So kind of like, what is your, like your purpose or your objective? Like, like you said, if you want to do like these big things, Mm -hmm. There's no way that you're going to have the ability to do it by yourself. But if it's something smaller and more personal, you can handle it on your own. The only kind of like thing that I've heard as like pushback is a freelancer tends to be somebody who's doing everything themselves, right? And so that still kind of leaves you vulnerable to what happens if you get sick or you get hit by a car and you for some amount of time can't really do the work, right? Like that's one of the like big pushbacks on staying at that level where it's still just focused on you? Uh, it's called savings. Mm. <laughs> savings and insurance. Right. Um, yeah, no no one talks about that in, in like these circles. Like, uh, how do you get over that? Well, you make a crap ton of money. You pay your taxes. You uh, keep your expenses uh, low. And you invest that money into other income producing assets. And then if you ever decide, yeah, I don't want to work anymore. Stop working, right? Because you you have income producing assets. Uh, If you're in a service business, you're seldom ever going to be able to sell that thing at retirement level money. Mm. So you still, so even if you build an agency, you still have to solve what happens if I no longer have this agency. You still have to solve that problem. And insurance and savings solves that problem. Uh, you, you save your money, invest it into income producing assets, not just I got it saved. I got it under my mattress. Like that's not going to help you. You actually have to learn about other assets and invest it. Because one day your agency might go under, all your clients disappear, you know, the economy crashes and, and like, and what do you do then, right? You need to have some backup. You need to have some cushion. Um, then, the, then ultimately, if you do scale, like if you were to build an agency and you do scale and you become one of these just rare, rare entities, I mean, they are truly rare in the agency space and you cash out at, you know, decamillionaire and up. And it's like, oh, I could actually retire. Like, 
It's it's crazy. It's crazy rare, and it's at a low multiple. So it's gonna it's still gonna sting. It's not like you're a software company and you and you uh, uh, exit with a twenty x twenty x of your revenue, right? Not even earnings because you have no earnings, right? You have no income, no net income. So you cash out at twenty x your revenues, like yeah, like you're you're insane money. Uh, service businesses, it's going to be based on your net income. So you might, if you're lucky, you might get six or eight times if you're a rare, a rare agency. Mm -hmm. And it's like, oh, you're already making a million dollars a year and you sell for at best 8 million. Like, wow, I could just keep this thing running for a few more years and, and I'll have that money. Right. But most of the time it's like three X, four X, if you're good. Uh, one of my clients, he did, he got an independent valuation from three different sources, uh, looking to uh, find out how much his agency was worth to sell it because he's getting some inquiries. One point three earnings. Wow! So he was making nine hundred thousand dollars a year, and after taxes, he would have nine hundred thousand dollars. Like, I think I'll just keep it and run and let it run itself into the ground. I, it's better. I'd be better off financially just letting the thing go until it dies on its own than to, to, than to sell it. Yeah. It's interesting that you're touching on like the savings and like reinvesting into other things, because even though right now we're going through a really difficult period for a lot of people with, uh, you know, COVID and everything like that it's always good to look on the bright side and to try to like learn the lessons out of situations. Yes, it's a really difficult time. And like, I don't want to minimize that. But one of the things that periods like this does do is it does make you think about that, right? Like, okay, like maybe I should have been saving up more. Maybe I should have been diversifying my income streams, right? Uh, for example, last time there was a recession, I was in high school and my I was still a chimp, right? Like I didn't understand what was happening. Um, uh-huh. And now it's going through it. And this is like a really good kind of learning lesson. Like, hey, this is going to happen again. Maybe not under the same circumstances, but it's really good to have those savings, you know, have that diversified income um, so that you can make it through. Um, and, and I think that it's definitely um, a really good lesson. Before we kind of start wrapping up, I do want to touch on something else that you talk about. Obviously, like I said at the very beginning of the interview, a lot of the people who I look up to who have built up expertise look up to you for that. Um, and so I do want to touch on that is I think expertise and being recognized as an expert on something is one of the best calling cards. Okay. Um, and I watched a really great video with you called um, where you talked with a gentleman who was from Portugal. And I thought it was a very interesting subject where you said, like, how do you develop the legend of you? Um, so I do want to talk about that. How would you suggest that people go about building up an expertise, building up um branding that they're an expert on somebody. Um, let's start there. Okay. Uh, we can just turn to academia. Uh, professors uh, have a phrase. I don't know if you know it. Uh, there is a phrase that is rampant in academia, which is publish or perish. Mm. Done. Answered, answered the question. You publish or you perish. And would you say that can it be self-published? Like, can it be putting up stuff on YouTube? Or do you think you need to jump to being published by a publishing company, for example? 
Well, how big do you want to be? I've never been published. Actually, all the books that I've ever started writing in my 20 plus year career, I've never finished a single one of them. So what do you do? I'm not, I'm not published. Uh, They're still sitting on hard drives. Like I'm going to like one of those, like, I'm going to get to that. Mm -hmm. I'll get to that. Probably when I'm just sitting around on a rocking chair (laughs) and, you know, and then write my memoirs or something. Right. Uh, you can, you can go traditional routes and, and, and you probably should if you want the greatest credibility. So, uh, so you, uh, you have to realize that, uh, your expertise and, and we'll, I'll define two different things, expertise and authority, because they're not the same thing, uh, uh will define, are on levels, a, a gradient, right? So if you, I just learned how to play the guitar and someone's like, Hey, could you show me how to do it? Well, you're an expert in that person's eyes, expert enough to show them the, the three chords that you learned on how to play, uh, uh, Ramon's songs or something like you, that's, that's as good as you got. Uh, but then if you want to be seen as the world renowned, uh, nuclear physicists or something, well, then you're going to need a lot more expertise, like an actual real knowledge and expertise. But if you want to make money as a, uh, as a freelancer uh, uh, or an agency, you need to develop authority. Authority in the market is far more valuable than the actual expertise. So I, uh, so I always uh, say that uh, authority is what attracts a client. Expertise is what keeps them. Mm. So a lot of people are focused on trying to say, look, I'm an expert. Look, I'm an expert. At least I know more than you do. I'm an expert. You should hire me. Well, all the experts look like that. So who do you actually choose? You choose the one that you feel has the gravitas, the, the one that is right for me. So uh, that's authority. Uh, and I always call I, uh, the other way I call it is the Oprah effect. People would rush out and buy anything Oprah uh, recommended, and Oprah would have was running a show that was running five days a week and had multiple guests per show. There's absolutely no way she could have been an expert in all those things. It's it's like probably twenty five different topics a week. I'm barely, I'm barely an expert on one topic and I, and I spend my whole life on it. Right. And, and she would sell out other people's stuff by just simply saying it's a good product. I believe in it. It's, it worked for me. No, she did not have any expertise on any of those topics, but she had authority and she could sell millions of dollars in a couple of minutes simply from authority. If you understand the difference between authority and expertise, you can generate a significant amount of money. I think you defined it pretty well, right? Like it can be, you know, as long as you know more than the person you're selling to. But how do you develop authority then? I call it augmented reality. Uh, it's manipulating perceptions. Like how, uh, that's... All the media does, you know, I know it doesn't sound nice, but that's what the media does. Uh, you, the media frames the world 
a certain way and then says it over and over again until you believe that that's how the world actually is. So you start off being a nobody. Well, I know how to do stuff. I can get a result for people. Like I can build an awesome, beautiful website, but why would they choose me over someone else who can build an awesome, beautiful website? Well, I need to develop the authority. Some people go niche. They, they become, I'm the greatest website uh, designer for SaaS. And that becomes what they try to be as, as an authority until, well, there's a million of you who say the exact same thing. So you, then you have to notch it up a, a, another level. Uh, so you start looking at what kind of credibility indicators do I need to get people to see me as the only solution for them? Uh, testimonials are great. Case studies are great. But everything that's that has the greatest impact is third party legend. Right. So you, as, as you were saying, the people you look up to look up to me. That's legend. Right. Uh, like, oh, if you want to learn this, go talk to that person. Like if you can get the, the right people that surround your prospect to say, you should go check that out. You should go check out that book, that YouTube channel, that podcast, that blog. Go check that out because that might solve your problem. That creates a legend around you. That augments uh, the, your reality so that people perceive you as the solution for them. Well, why do I do it? Why did I choose that? Well, if the people around me say that this is probably the best solution for me, I'm going to give greater weight to anything I see from that solution. And, you know, that particular person they've recommended. And then, I'll, then I will judge all competitors based upon that perception, not on the person's actual expertise. Because as I said, humans don't really care about your expertise when they make a buying decision. They care about your authority. So uh, look at the things around you. What do you need to, uh, to show that you're the expert? So I've been on, I don't know, countless podcasts. I've lost track. I used to like post them and like, I just lost track. I've been on a ton of them. They're uh, going back uh, over 10 years and I've been on so many of them. Those things are still out there floating around, uh, you know, uh, like little sparks hitting minds here and there, left and right, that they all eventually start filtering back to this long haired, crazy guy on the internet that is, that stays essentially behind the scenes. Like, like uh, that, that forms like that guy's probably like the guru on top of the mountain because all the other people say, go up that mountain because he's there. Right. So you, so you need to look at that greater, uh, that, environment around you and see what pieces can I install around me that, that all lead like little tendrils back to me. Like, what are they? And then if you really want to step it up a notch, like if I wanted to be famous, like then I would then have to go up to another level. I'd have to, I would have to start showing up in traditional media. 
because humans have been conditioned to believe anything traditional media is far superior than anything self-published, even though we are highly influenced by the self-published stuff when it comes to taking action. But if I want to be famous, I've got to then step it up. I need to be in Forbes, Inc., uh, not, not, the, not the crappy little uh, ones where they have the contributors posting in it, but act, the actual magazines. I need to show up in those. I need to get on news programs. I need to be on MSNBC talking about what I think is uh, happening with COVID related to business, even though I don't really have any expertise there. But I need to be there and saying those things because then then the rest of the world will start perceiving me as as a higher authority than I currently am. Creating your own little culture that that uh, other little fish swim in. I think it definitely touches also on that YouTube video that I mentioned that I saw you posted on your channel, which was, uh, I think it was titled something like, what is your legend or what is the legend of you? And the gentleman that you were speaking with on that video was very interesting because what his story was, was that he was trying to work with small businesses to do Google ads or something similar to that. And instead what you almost kind of asked them was what is going to be your legend, right? And like, why are you going down kind of low? Like, why don't you actually like level up and bring yourself up to that status? Like, can you explain that question that you asked them? Like, what is the legend of you? Cause that was, I watching it, I was like, Oh shit, that's like a hammer drop, right? Like, that's a really good point. Can you talk a little bit about that? So Tiago uh, was an expert. He had worked for Google, all right? He, like, he, he worked for Google for years. He was a marketing director for a startup. Uh, and, and he was trying to start his own thing. So instead of, instead of staying at the startup level that he was currently at, or uh, not even mentioning going back to like Google level, right? He jumped all the way to the bottom, listening to gurus out there that said to start an agency, go after the, the, the smallest businesses who have no money, go after them and then build your way up. And, and it, it, it like, that sounds insane. Like when you describe it, but loads of experts do that. They devalue their expertise and jump downwards they don't even try to make a lateral move from their previous job. They go down instead of like looking at, well, where do I want to be? I want to be this guy up here. I'm currently this guy here. Like, how do I leap there instead of trying to slog my way through to get to it? Uh, there, there's this book that I read a long time ago, early in my career, called Winning Through Intimidation by Robert Ringer. Uh, and, uh, it, it describes a, th a theory called the leapfrog theory. And, and I've used that for my whole career. It's like, uh, most people, they start at the bottom and they try slogging their way through the herd of people in their field to try to become one of the best, one of the leaders in the field. And Robert Ringer's like, you know, that sounds awesome and everything, you know, slogging your way through stuff like that sounds like like uh, loads of fun. But I would rather just be one of the best. What does it take to just be one of the best? And so he was in commercial uh, wanting to get into commercial real estate brokerage. 
He and everybody told him, well, you have to go be a real estate agent and sell uh, residential stuff for a while and then work your way into a, a commercial brokerage. And then then you'll sell some stuff for that brokerage for a while. And then you'll build up a book of your own stuff. And then you'll then maybe one day, 20 years later, you could start your own brokerage. And he's like, that doesn't sound right. Like, it doesn't sound like I have to do that. Uh, and, and the question is like, well, why? Why do I have to do it that way? Well, so that you can prove that you're an expert, so that you can be an, essentially be anointed by some other greater authority that you're an expert. So instead, it's like, well, what does, what does the person at the top do? What are, uh, and so if you want credibility indicators, identify who you want to be. Like out of all the people in the mar- in your market, who are the best? And do you want to be one of them? If so, find out what all the credibility indicators are that make them the best. Replicate that. Study whatever you need to study. Uh, put together all the pieces you need to put together and then leap to being one of the best. The kicker is, and this scares most people, is that if you get there and you can't perform at that level, you get kicked back to the minor leagues. Like If you can't play uh, in the big leagues, the market kicks you back, right? Just sends you back and you get to start all over again. And, uh, and so for those who are watching who understand like SEO, well, one of the things you do in SEO is you do a competitor analysis and see, well, what links are, are those sites getting? And then you try to get similar links, right? You just you just try to get similar links. And then all of a sudden, my site is deemed an authority in Google. You're doing the same thing, but to you personally. What are all the links that lead to the best in your industry? What are those links? And can you replicate those links for yourself? And then all of a sudden, you'll jump to number one in Google rankings, right? But in life. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting, especially for people who are like freelancers and stuff like that. Is like to, I, I love the concept of like leapfrogging. Like skip the steps, go straight to the top, build that authority because that authority will lead to expertise or assume expertise, which will lead to clients almost. And, and a lot of times higher paying clients, right? Because you have that authority. You're not just, you're not just Joe Schmo on Upwork right. that's, you know, offering whatever. Um, Tim, I got to be, uh, I'm loving this conversation, but I have to be respectful of your time. I know that we're kind of uh, pushing the time limit on this one. Uh, thank you so much for coming by and, and stopping by. Like I said, um, tons of people that I look up to have pointed to you for expertise uh, and, and authority. So thank you so much for uh, coming by and sharing that. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. And in wrapping up, tell people where can they find you? Um, I know that you have some trainings that you provide. If people were listening to this and they kind of want to learn more and and get some training from you, where can they get that? Uh, they could do all the guru stuff. But what I'd say is just go to YouTube. Go to youtube.com forward slash Tim Conley, T-I-M-C-O-N-L-E-Y and consume all my videos, right? Just, just you'll get... You'll get my entire philosophy, or most of it anyways, you know, I'm trying to condense 20 years into it, but uh, most of my philosophy there on how to do this and how to build uh, a business that gives you time, income, and mobility. Awesome. Yeah, we're going to have all the links um, 
that you mentioned uh, on uh, on the show notes. So if anybody's interested, go over there and check them out. Uh, Tim, thank you so much for stopping by. I really appreciate it. And uh, all the best, man. Thanks for having me.